Well, good morning, everyone. Let's, uh, before we get stuck into our word this morning, let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this word. Lord, that you would go to such extents to make yourself known to us. That you would teach us even so many years apart about your son and about his words and keep them so accurate. Lord, that we might know, that we might hear, that we might learn and respond. Heavenly Father, just as we listen this morning to what is a heavy word from Jesus to the Pharisees, Lord, there is a message of mercy in here. I pray that we might hear it if we need it, Lord. And we might rejoice in the heart of a, of a father that is eager to win his people to him. Give us ears to be able to hear. Give me a mouth to be able to speak, Lord, and uh, bless our time as we read your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, we're going through Matthew in chapter 12. Now, from the translation that we had read to us, uh, which I'm sure took a little bit of practice from Nathan and Kathy, it started with uh, something like, and then another day or at another time. Uh, in, an, in other translations, it, it makes it more apparent that actually this is a part of the same conversation that we've already begun last week. Our passage starts midway through this conversation that Jesus is having with some Pharisees. At the beginning of verse 22 of this chapter, a man is brought before Jesus. And this man has a demon within him. He is mute and he is blind. And amazingly, Jesus can heal him and he does so in front of all the people uh, that are with him at the time. Now, we have been reading through Matthew for 12 chapters now, and we have seen and read and spoken about a lot of healing taking place. And it may be that we become a little dull towards the miracles that Jesus is actually performing. But the people that Jesus is with, they witness something incredible that day something they haven't seen before take place. They see his power, his authority, and a mercy taking place over someone that is otherwise rejected by this culture. And they respond to this incredible scene, it says, with awe. They are amazed at what Jesus is able to do for this man. We do well ourselves to try and shake off our dullness as we read such things. Because the people here begin to wonder as they see Jesus cast out these demons and heal this man. Is this man the son of David? And that's not a small question for these people to be asking. Is he the promised one of God? the son of David, the king, the Messiah that's going to come to rescue us. Even though they're still not totally certain, it seems to be a question that they are pondering 
There is a stirring of faith here as they've witnessed this miracle. But the Pharisees, who have also seen this miracle, try to stomp out these sorts of questions, at least at this occasion. No, no, this is not done by the power of God. This is Jesus working instead with the power of Beelzebub through demonic powers. He's taking authority to cast out demons. And Jesus has a strong word to say about such a statement, and which Ray spoke out last week. <clears throat> if you haven't missed it, if you have missed it, it's worth listening to. But boiling down the passage, Jesus says that he casts out by the power of the Spirit, that he's come in the kingdom, in the name of the kingdom of God. And he doesn't cast out by Beelzebub. And in fact, these men are in need of repentance for saying such things, of accrediting the work of the Spirit to demonic powers instead. And that they are in fact blaspheming the Spirit. Well, the Pharisees have what we know as a very well-known response. <clears throat> I'm sure you've heard it said by many people that are not believers. I'll believe if, you sh if God just showed me a sign. Just show me some proof, Lord. Jesus, if you perform a miracle from heaven, something that is indisputably from God, then we'll follow then we'll repent, as you, you've asked us to do. Now, <clears throat> it is good to be discerning. It's good to seek out proof, to discern the truth of good things. It's as good to do when you receive an email from a Nigerian prince <laughs> as it is from someone claiming to be the Messiah. You don't want to believe just anything that is thrown your way. To be like the Bereans in Acts, who even in their eagerness to hear a message from Paul, still test his words against the truth of the word. And if this is what the Pharisees were doing, I don't think Jesus would have responded the way that he did to say that it is evil to seek out signs or that an evil and adulterous generation seek after a sign. But these men are asking for a sign from Jesus not so that they might believe, but as an excuse to remain in their unbelief. This is why Jesus says what he does. It's not because the use of signs to kindle faith is actually evil. Signs are not a bad thing, and the use of them isn't a bad thing. He says it's the pursuit of of signs that seems to be evil. Jesus, in fact, uses signs to this end many times. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke, you see the order being faith and then a miracle taking place. But in fact, the Gospel of John has it the other way around, where often miracles take place in order that they might believe, is the sentence used again and again. This is seen in instances like the water being turned into wine so that the disciples might believe, that they might come to faith. Thomas, the doubter, after Jesus has died and come back again, says, I will not believe until I've seen the marks on his hands. 
And Jesus doesn't begrudge him and, in fact, reveals his hands to them, lets him touch the scars in his hands. And he says to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. He doesn't tell him off. But then he follows it up with, blessed are those who have not seen and still believed. Those who are chosen by God to be his children, it seems at times are like dry kindling, just waiting for a spark to ignite belief. They're not waiting. They're not, it's not the sign itself, but it's the beginning of faith, trusting in the word from then on. But there are some, like the Pharisees that we see in this passage, that rather than being like a pile of dry kindling, waiting to believe, are more like a bucket of water that will never ignite. It doesn't matter the size of the spark or the sign. We consider Pharaoh at the time of the exile. Yes, his heart was hardened at times, but there were times where that description is not given, where he just has a hard heart. Now, he sees plagues of epic proportions falling upon the land and upon his people. Signs of God, water turning into blood, boils and flies and darkness across the land. I personally don't see the problem with a plague of gnats. I think that would be... <laughs> quite all right. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, all of these plagues are, have decimated one of the mightiest nations on the earth. And yet his heart doesn't change. It doesn't matter how big the miracle is. I heard one preacher this week exclaim that even if the stars were to realign in front of our eyes to spell out the gospel message, people would wonder, what a strange cosmological event. I wonder how that happened. And that would be it. That would be it. The Pharisees have just seen a sign. They've just seen a man who was demon-possessed and blind and mute be healed. And what is their response? They don't respond with belief. They don't ask the question or become amazed like the people that have stood around him. Instead, they say, oh, this man deals with the demons. They find another reason, another excuse. Because the sign isn't what's what they're looking for. They want to reject Jesus. They don't wonder, is this the son of David? They saw a sign and said that he consorts with demons. These are men that have turned away from God, even though they were Israelites. A part of the chosen nation of God, even though they had read the word and even prided themselves on their deep knowledge of the word. Jesus calls them evil and interestingly, he calls them adulterers. For they have cheated and turned away from their true love. Preferring sin instead. So there will be no sign. Jesus says, for those who seek it this way, except, except the sign of Jonah. 
Now, many of us have heard the full tale of Jonah, the disobedient prophet, given the command by God to go to Nineveh, a land and people outside of Israel, a Gentile people, and to preach against them for the wickedness that they have done before the Lord. And Jonah, knowing that, in fact, if these people repent, God will have mercy on them and not wanting them to receive mercy, catches a boat and goes the other way. And through a series of unfortunate events, ends up in the stomach of a great fish for three days and three nights, praying to the Lord. And Jonah eventually, when he is spat up, travels to Nineveh and gives his message, the message of a prophet of God to the people. And it is abrupt to read. We heard it this morning. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Doom. Judgment. And there appears to be no mercy there. And yet, despite this, the people of Nineveh respond to the word of God with repentance. The city falls on its knees. You hear the, just that sentence that the king gets off of his throne. He takes off his royal clothing and dresses in sackcloth and ashes and sits instead in a heap of ashes before God. And he tells all the people and even the animals to stop working and to be dressed in sackcloth and ashes. And we will come to this God. Even though mercy has not been spoken of, just judgment. And we'll throw ourselves at his feet and repent. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Now, Jonah's three days and three nights in the belly of a fish was a sign, but it wasn't the sign alone that actually saved the people. It was the proof of authenticity that he was a prophet of God and that the word he was delivering was not the ramblings of a madman, but in fact from Yahweh. And that they believed the word, and so they responded. So Jesus says, I will give you a sign like that of Jonah, you Pharisees. The Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And what he's saying to them is this. I am going to provide you with the proof that you need. All the evidence that you could possibly and reasonably require to be able to believe in the words that I am giving you. That you might also come before the Lord in repentance and mercy and be saved. I'm going to give you everything you need in this sign. And you'll know that I am sent and that I speak not on behalf of Beelzebub or even just another man. But I speak on the behalf of the Lord of heaven and earth. For one that is greater than Jonah is here, standing before you. 
Isn't it astounding that there is no reason whatsoever for people in this day or that day to be able to accuse God of not providing enough evidence to believe? To be able to win us to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Jesus' own sign of Jonah is enough for people to lend the words of Scripture weight enough to be dressed in sackcloth and ashes, to step down from our thrones. What an undeserved kindness from our God to seek us out. Now, he doesn't have to win us over. He is the Lord of the heavens. All things belong to him. We are his, even if we don't like it at times or rebel against it at times. He doesn't have to prove himself to us, but he does. He wants to. Now, at times, and this is not something I'm necessarily proud of, even though I'll smile while I say it, (laughs) I will walk around my house like I am the Lord of my home. And I will give commands, particularly to my children, with that sentence that is so well known, because I said so is why you do it. To my shame, because here is the Lord. I have, I have no desire in those moments to win my children over to what I think is the right way of doing something. To prove to them to make it something they want to do. But here is the Lord of all things. Here is Jesus burdened with the desire to win his people to him. Rather than just command obedience or worse, just handing out destruction without giving any chance of repentance. Instead, he pulls out every stop he can to bring everyone he can into his kingdom. There are many reasons why Jesus' death and resurrection saves us. But one of them is this this morning, that it is the all-sufficient proof we need to win us to the truth of his word, that we might respond like those in Nineveh did and follow him to repent and receive mercy. This is Jesus' aim. Well, as Nineveh is spoken of as rising up to condemn the generation that seeks signs, so does the Queen of the South. The Queen of the South is, of course, the Queen of Sheba. Her story has a similar pattern to that of Nineveh. She hears the rumours of King Solomon, a king who possesses incredible wisdom in a land that's distant and she doesn't believe that it's quite possible to be that wise so she seeks out to test him to find out whether it is true and so she sets out in a long uh, for a long travel to go and test him with hard questions and when she sees the proof when she asks the questions and he gives her wise answers beyond what she could have expected. And she sees the favour of the Lord resting on the nation that is around him. It says that her breath is taken away. 
She responds like the people that saw the miracle of Jesus healing the demon. Ah, healing the demon. Good grief. Healing the person from the demon. She's in, she's in awe. What an amazing God you have. And she worships with him. She too, Jesus says, will rise up and condemn this wicked generation. For here is one right now standing before them, greater even than Solomon. More deserving of their attention to his wisdom. Who instead of waiting for them to seek him out, as the queen came and sought out the king, King Solomon, this king has sought them out and provided all that they need to be able to believe. But they don't worship God in seeing Jesus. They seek to test him so that they might respond in disbelief. They seek, their seeking of a sign is false and not true. It looks like they are being fair and legitimately giving Jesus a chance. But their actions are false and more akin, as we'll see, to neatening the house of a demon. Now, I realise a passage like this is actually very heavy to read. It's full of condemnation that falls upon the Pharisees and their lack of response. But their actions, oh, pardon me, but he is showing them the error of their ways. And if we consider Jonah's message to Nineveh, where he gave a message of doom, there is always an opportunity here for them to respond to even this by falling on their knees before the Lord. There's always an opportunity for them to be able to repent. It's not over for the Pharisees. They can still call on this God of mercy because he is so eager to be able to give it. And even this message of Jesus to them is a way of trying to shake them up. To give them yet another chance as Nineveh had. But sadly, I think Jesus knows and he says it clearly to the Pharisees, you won't be like Nineveh. And you won't be like the Queen of the South. You are going to ignore all the proof that I will lay before you. Even as I rise from the dead, you'll deny it. Now, I think it's safe to say that the Pharisees are not followers of Jesus. To be sure, as they simply don't believe in who he is and in the word that he is speaking. They believe they are doing the right thing. They are discerning the word of God and it is not Jesus. They are the good guys in their minds. But Jesus paints another paradigm by speaking of the demons he was accursed of consorting with himself. When a demon leaves a man, it goes into arid places looking for rest. And when it doesn't find it, it returns to the man from where it came with several even more wicked demons in tow. 
only to find the place empty, swept and put in order. So shall it be for this wicked generation. The Pharisees are not aware, but they are not on God's side of the cosmic equation because they have rejected his son. And he is the one that has come empowered by the spirit and in the name of the kingdom of God. As Jesus said only a few verses ago, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So who are they then? What party do they belong to if it is not Jesus's? There are only two. You are either a follower of God or what Jesus points out here, you are a dwelling place for demons. That's a scary reality. The two paths on offer are repentance in response to the word given by Jesus or to trust in your own self-righteousness. Such as giving Jesus an opportunity to prove himself, but not really prove himself. And all of that self-righteousness, Jesus seems to point out, all it really achieves is that you are the house cleaning for these demons. The Pharisees are without Christ worse off than even the man that arrived and that was spared from the demon at the beginning of this conversation. He was considered unclean and outcast because of the demons and yet now he is free because he has responded to the word of God. But here are these men that are sitting at the top of this culture. But they are the ones that are unclean because they have rejected the word of God. In their unresponsive disbelief, they remain hollow. The demon goes away and it comes back and finds the place empty and swept. destined only to grow in their wickedness as more and more spirits take up residence. And this is the destiny of those that don't respond to the proof laid at their feet by Christ. But for those that do, for Nineveh, for the Queen, for his disciples, it's an entirely different situation. At this point in the passage, Mary, Jesus' mother, approaches along with her brothers and they seek an audience with him. And Jesus doesn't leave, but instead asks the question, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he points. And who does he point to but his disciples? The people around him that when called followed. Now we know that the disciples didn't have everything figured out. They didn't understand what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah, not in totality. They didn't understand the prophecies he spoke regarding the destruction and the rebuilding of the temple. 
They didn't understand a lot of things, but they responded to the word of God. They simply trusted that Jesus was the way. They repented and followed him. They were, as our passage says, people that did the will of the Father. Now, this isn't speaking of perfect obedience in all things. They still struggled with sin. But the words of Jesus were authoritative in their lives. That they would do as Jesus has been preaching to the people all this time through this gospel. Repent and believe for the kingdom of God is at hand. These were not people that were wise enough to respond. It wasn't because of their wisdom. It wasn't because they were strong enough to respond or beautiful enough to respond. Jesus says only a chapter before in speaking to the Father, Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and from the prudent. You've revealed them to babes. These were simply a people that needed a saviour. They were in need and Jesus came to them. And because of that, Jesus says, they aren't just my followers. They aren't just disciples or people on my side of the equation. These are my brothers and my sisters and my mother. They are not hollow people occupied by unclean spirits, but a part of the family of God. How wonderful it is that we have a saviour that would go to such lengths to provide every evidence we could possibly need to be able to enter into the family of God. What amazing humility and love from a God that doesn't need to do so and yet chooses to. To win us to him. That he would leave every door open to the repentance of even hard-hearted Pharisees until their last breath. That everyone that hears his word and repents might be called a brother or a sister of Christ. Let's pray and give thanks to our Heavenly Father for this message. Lord God, I give thanks, even in the message that does have such heavy condemnation. Lord, for so many here, we can still sing praise that you have brought us to a place where we are now family because of the amount of work that you have done. Lord, that everyone that hears and sees the proof of your son coming back from the dead has a chance, Lord, because of you to be able to enter into it, to this heavenly family. Father, I pray for those in our in our blood family, families, Lord, 
those that we are born with that might deny you and our friends as well or those that we work with that we've grown up with father that have heard of the hope that we have in your son that have maybe said words like the Pharisees have, if only I saw a sign. Lord God, that you would open their eyes, that you would soften their hearts. Father, that it wouldn't be too late to be able to see the wonders of the sign in Christ, the sign of Jonah, the truth of it and respond. We pray, Lord, that you would be at work revealing uh, this in their lives. Help us to be able to continue to share and place your sign in front of them. That one day, Lord, they might repent and call you Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.